Let's open again in our Bibles to the 13th chapter of the book of Nehemiah. You know, I, I knew when I was preaching uh, this morning when I was, well, really in the preparation and getting ready and studying for the message this morning, I said, Lord, this is going to be a hard message, you know. And I'm on, you're asking me to just get up and fuss at all them people. And uh, that was, he was asking that, not me. It's not what I wanted to do. And, uh, but I said, so Lord, you're going to have to give me a sweet message. I mean, something where, you know, there's times that you got to shear the sheep and times when you got to apply that oil and comfort. And, uh, so the Lord gave me a message on the walls of Jericho and on overcoming our obstacles and on great victory. Well, anyway, we preached too long this morning, so you ain't going to get to hear that message. Instead, we're going to get back into Nehemiah chapter 13. And uh, I want to spend a few moments because there's some things I didn't get to share with you out of this chapter this morning. We'll do our best to mind the Lord tonight. Let's begin reading in verse 10. We read these passages this morning, but I want to refresh your memory for the preaching of God's Word. Uh, Nehemiah, he arrives back into the land of Israel, into the city of Jerusalem. And he perceived, verse 10, that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries. And I made treasures over the treasuries, Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Then Nehemiah prays this. He asks God to do this. He says, Remember me, O God, O my God, concerning this. Wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this passage again tonight with our hearts affixed on this thought of dedication. May the Spirit of God have liberty this evening to uh, administrate, orchestrate, coordinate this service in such a way that bring you glory. And Lord, may you do a work in our hearts tonight. I pray that everything that's said would bring glory to the Lord Jesus, that there wouldn't be a touch of flesh upon it, but that, Lord, it would be only that which uplifts and exalts the name of Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not going to re-preach my message from this morning, but I would simply remind you of the context of this passage. This is part of a series we've been doing out of this 13th chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, You know, if you know anything about the history that surrounds this time in the children of Israel's, uh, in their historical record, how that there were three great things that had been accomplished in their national life. Under Ezra, they had come back to the land from Babylonian captivity, and they had had rebuilt the temple. When Nehemiah, God stirs and moves upon his heart to come back and to rebuild the walls. And so the book of Nehemiah is occupied with that endeavor. And when both of these things were taking place, there were enemies that stood up and withstood the work of God. And again, I'd remind you, if you set your heart and mind to do something for God, the devil is sure enough going to show up and try to disrupt and try to destroy the work that God is doing. But in all three of these instances, we find that God gave victory. In fact, the temple was rebuilt. They finished it, they built it, they consecrated it, and they reinstituted worship. Also, we read that the wall was restored. They, in fact, completed the task of building the wall around the city to provide safety and security. And every time that the enemy stood up, God, in answer, stood up as well. And we find that the enemy was rebuffed. 
Now, again, there's a tendency, I think, read portions of Scripture, especially Old Testament Scripture, and say, well, preacher, what in the world does that have to do with me? But I'd remind you that these three facts, these three realities in their life, they parallel three realities in the Christian life. You see, the temple being rebuilt meant that they had the resources they needed to serve God. Uh, they weren't, uh, they, they didn't lack a single thing in the arena of what they needed to be able to commence the work of God. You know, that's true of you and me in this day of grace. God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And uh, God is so interested with us having the resources to serve Him that He has taken up residence in our life, in our person, uh, through the agency of the Spirit of God who takes up residency in the life of every born-again believer. So we have all the resources we need to serve God. The wall being restored meant they had the freedom to serve God. No one could stop them. No one could make them serve God, but no one could stop them from serving God. And that's true in this day of grace as well. In fact, God is so interested in us having the freedom to serve Him that through taking up residence in our life in the person of the Holy Ghost, we ourselves have become the temple of the living God. And we have the freedom, even, listen, though your feet be in shackles, though your hands be in cuffs, though you may be chained to a rock in the middle of nowhere, you could still, like Paul and Silas, lift your voices in praise, pray, sing, rejoice, and worship God, no matter what you're going through. Nobody can stop you from worshiping and serving God. You have the freedom to serve Him. And then the enemy being rebuffed reminds me that their ability to serve God was not impeded in any way. There wasn't nobody big enough, bad enough to show up and stop the work of God from going on if God's people would stay faithful to it. And that's true in this day of grace as well. We do have an enemy. We have an adversary. He walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But let me remind you that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is certainly a formidable foe, but he is a defeated foe. And the only power he can have in our life, the only, the only area, the only place he can have in our life is the place that we give him. And that's why Paul exhorts us to give no place to the devil. Now you'd think with all these things happening that the city of Jerusalem would be in fine shape. You would imagine that worship would be commencing. You would imagine that the people would be at peace. You would imagine that righteousness would be exalted as a cultural and, and national standard. But instead, Nehemiah shows up and the place is a mess. It's a reminder that though we have all these things, our life can still be in a mess. And if you don't believe that, listen, I, I, I could tell you names of people, and, and I'd, if I'm being honest, there'd be times I'd have to put my name on that list of people who have everything they need to serve God, but still sometimes our life is a mess. And still we fail, and still oftentimes our spiritual house is not in order. So we've been preaching along those lines of getting your spiritual house in order. When Nehemiah shows up in chapter 13, he's been gone away uh, back in, in Persia. When he arrives back, he addresses several problems in succession. First thing that's dealt with is they had to get their associations right if they were going to be right with the Lord and have their house in order. They had to get rid of the mixed multitude, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the worldly carnal influences that were drawing them astray. Then they had to get their sanctification right. There were certain things uh, in their in their national life that had to be gotten out and certain things that had to be put back in. Tobiah had uh, been given a place in the house of God. What had once been the storehouses to keep the tithes and the offerings uh, now had become uh, his playhouse and he was living in this storehouse. And uh, Nehemiah, he shows up, he sees what's going on, he grabs him. I don't know if he grabbed him by the nape of the neck. That's what I like to imagine. Grabbed him by the collar 
Pilate threw that sucker out onto the front lawn of the, of, of the court of the Gentiles and said, you stay out of here. This isn't your place. And they cast all of his stuff out of that storehouse and they brought in the tithes and the offerings. We've got to get our consecration or our sanctification right. And then this morning we preached for a few minutes, if we can say it that way, on getting your dedication right. Because one of the things that Nehemiah observed, and we read about it in verse number 10, is that when he walks into the house of God, it's a ghost town. There's nobody there. I don't know if you realize this, but the temple was a busy place. There was always sacrifices going on. There was always uh, duties that had to be carried out. And if you had walked into the temple at any given time, there would have been just a flurry of activity. But when Nehemiah walks in, he just hears crickets. And he looks around and he says, where is everybody? And he perceived that the problem was that they had not given the portion of the Levites that they needed to live there. So the Levites had fled and gone back to their field. And he gathers the rulers together and he asks them a very pointed question. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? We notice that in chapter 10, they had sworn this would never happen. They had sworn the house of God would never ever be forsaken. They had promised God solemnly that they would forever be faithful to God's house. But you know, most of us, if we want to be honest, there's things that we've allowed in our life that we at one time would have thought were unthinkable. And there is a certain level of apathy that we have permitted in our life that at one time would have been unthinkable to us. There are certain things that we say, well, I'd never give up on that, but now we've given up on it. How did that happen? Well, we noticed two things in the preaching this morning. One, we noticed there was a lapse in faithfulness. Whenever he shows up, he says, I can tell you right now what's happened. They ain't been taking care of the house of God. They've not been giving the way that they were supposed to be giving. And so the Levites, they fled because they had nothing to live off of. Now, I'm not giving them a pass. I'm going to fuss at them here in a second. But suffice it to say that the Levites couldn't stay there and do the work if they didn't have the resources to do it. And when people stopped giving, the work of God could not go on. There was a lapse in their faithfulness. They stopped giving. And as a result, there was a loss of focus. They stopped going. You say, hey, preacher, how does a church become a ghost town? Well, when God's people just grow disinterested in it. When they got, when the ball game's more important to them, when their, when their activities, when their pleasure, when their leisure, when their job grows more important to them than the things of God. Uh, very, listen, there are churches that just get into such a mess that there's big blow up. They decide they're going to remodel the auditorium and eight churches are birthed out of it through church splits. But in my experience, more often than not, you know what kills most churches is apathy. People just quit caring. You know, I found this very often. It is easier to execute unfaithfulness through apathy than it is through direct conflict. And there's a lot of people, and this is a characteristic of our age. I think social media has cultivated a lot of this. Because we live in a time where if you don't want to talk to anybody anymore, you just push a button. And it's like they don't even exist. And it, it has conditioned us to never be able to deal with conflict and awkwardness, and one-on-one conversations. That's why you see kids, they'll all be together texting each other. Four foot from each other, texting each other. Because they don't want the face-to-face interaction. They've lost the ability to have social communication. And very often adults are the same way, maybe not in the minute things of life, but often in the big things. And so very often for people it's easier, rather than having to love people and let them love you, rather than having to give grace to people and having to ask for grace from people, rather than having to forbear one another in love, it's just easy to walk away sometimes. And that's what they did. 
When there was a lapse in faithfulness, it created a loss in focus. The Levites that should have been there laboring and ministering in the, in the temple because that was supposed to be their whole life. They weren't supposed to be living for this world. They were supposed to be living for the world to come. They weren't to have their mind on temporal things, but on eternal things, not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. The Bible says they fled to their field. Field, of course, in New Testament typology or, or, or parables, if we want to say it that way, is always a picture of the world. The world. But there's no question that for them, they fled to their field. You know what that means? They didn't have what they thought they needed at the house of God, so they went out and tried to find it in their field. They tried to grow what wasn't being given, and they began to expend their energies in serving self instead of serving God. And they lost focus of why they were there. Happens to a lot of people. They become obsessed with advancement, with material things. And so it was in that context that Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? They have no answer. The real answer, because it's a rhetorical question, is because we let it be forsaken. And so he goes, the Bible says, and he gathered them together and set them in their place. In other words, he went and got the Levites, he brought them in, he said, you have to stand in your spot, and if every one of us will stand in our spot, that's what will make this place flourish again. It's a reminder that you and I, we have a, a spot, a place. God's planted us. Uh, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. His delight shall be in the law of the Lord. The Bible says he shall be like a tree planted. 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 A tree ain't planted in a bunch of places. It's planted in one place. It's planted. Like a tree planted by uh, rivers of living water. And the Bible says that it will bear its fruit in its season. Its uh, leaf will not wither or fade. The fact is, they had to be in their place. And so, Nehemiah, he brings them in. He puts them in their place. And after he does this, after they're back where they need to be, the people begin to repay that debt that they owed. They began to bring the corn and the new wine and the oil. We spent a few moments this morning talking about what those represent. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Corn was an essential of life. Reminds me that we ought to serve God with the essentials of our life. We ought to give Him the substance of our life. In other words, the reason we wake up in the morning ought to be to serve God. Serve God. And then the new wine speaks of, of the, uh, of, how do I want to say this? Of the, of the wealth, of the prosperity, of the splendor of life. New wine often in the Bible is associated with wealth and with prosperity. And listen, when God blesses us, we ought to use it as a means to serve Him more. I found this, that if we, if we will always, if every time God blesses it, if we'll use it to bless Him, He'll always bless us more. And then they bring the oil. And I think that speaks of the spiritual things in life. We ought to give every bit of our spiritual focus, attention, and energies to the things of God. We also noticed how each of these things communicate to us a different aspect of our life that we ought to give to the Lord in this sense that corn is associated with resurrection in the Bible. Christ said in John chapter number 12, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. I'll tell you, I see two sides of the same coin there. I don't know if you do. But it reminds me of the sacrificial nature with which we ought to invest in the house of God and in the things of God. That's what Christ is talking about there. He's saying a, a kernel, a corn of wheat, if it stays by itself, 
if it seeks to guard and secure and shield and nurture self, it dies alone. But if it's willing to be sacrificed, to be planted in the ground, then it'll bear forth much fruit. You know, you'll find this to be a great truism of the spiritual life, that only through uh, mortifying self does God receive glory. He only increases when we decrease. Am I preaching right tonight? As long as it's us, it ain't Him. And as long as it's Him, it can't be us. But it's also a reminder that we ought to walk, we ought to to serve God, minister in the power of the resurrected life. I, I think that probably the resurrected life is the great theme of the book of Romans. People talk about justification by faith, and certainly that is a great theme to be found in the book of Romans. But you get into chapter 6, 7, 8, and the earlier parts of chapter number 9, you know what you find that Paul is talking about is that we have died to sin, to self, at Calvary in the person of the Lord Jesus. Not simply that we might have our sins forgiven of us, but so that we might also be raised, as we say when we pull someone out of baptismal waters, raised to walk in newness of life. And we're to walk in the power and in the truth and in the reality of the resurrection. What is that reality? That reality is this, that our old man is dead, but that our new man is alive in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's people ought to be serving Him in His power. God's people ought to be coming to church in His power. God's people ought to be worshiping the house of God in the Lord's power, not in their own, not in the operation of the flesh, not according to the whimsy or preferences that they have but rather in subjection and surrender to the uh, administration of His Spirit and through His power and strength. It reminds me of the resurrected life. Also, the Bible says they brought in new wine, new wine, new wine, new wine, N-E-W, wine, new wine. I don't know if you heard me, but I said new wine. So why is that important, preacher? Well, there's a lot of difference between new wine and old wine. I heard a story of a fellow the other day. He said he was at a wedding and uh, they had a punch bowl. And that punch bowl was real down like low to the ground. It was one of these outdoor weddings. And he was standing by it. And uh, it was for the kids, you know. And so kids would come up to him and he would fill their punch cups and give it back to them. And uh, he did that for about an hour. And somebody finally came by and said, you know that's wine, don't you? <laughs> he said he had about 158 or 9 year old just lit. <laughs> Just turned and walked away. Big difference between new wine and old wine. Old wine, of course. And that's all right. Don't worry about this. This will save us time during the Lord's Supper, this preaching will. Old wine, of course, is fermented wine. One of the things that's necessary for wine to become uh, alcoholic is it has to be old wine. It has to ferment. You can't bypass the fermentation process. And the fermentation process requires time. When the Bible talks about wine in the Bible, it is almost every time talking about new wine. And most of the time when the Bible wants to denote alcohol, it calls it strong drink, not wine. So when it says new wine, it's talking about grape juice. And it's saying that this would be brought to uh, to the temple. And now they're repaying that debt by bringing that in. I won't take all the time to do it, but we talked this morning at length about Christ's mention of new wine in the New Testament and how that uh, He used new wine to illustrate the joy of New Testament grace and life. And it's a reminder to me that we ought to serve God with a joyful life. A joy. We ought to be dedicated with joy. There's some folks, that's, man, they're dedicated. They're just mad about it. I don't ever want it to be said, listen, it's fun to serve God. I, I want it to always be said about me 
that, I, listen, I served God, but I had fun doing it. Don't let it ever be said about Christians that they're miserable in their service of the Lord. I want to be dedicated, but I don't want anyone to ever think I'm mad about it, that i got a chip on my shoulder, that I feel like I'm doing God a favor. I want to be serving God with joy in my heart. And there's no telling how much power it would inject back into the local church if God's people would just learn to have joy again in serving Him and not constantly be treating it like it's a drudgery. Uh, we act like it's the most miserable thing in the world, and then we're shocked people ain't interested in it. Anybody planning on waking up tomorrow and having a, a root canal just for kicks and giggles? Probably not. You know why? Because it ain't no fun. Now, I'm not saying that uh, witnessing is, is a matter of marketing. Of course it's not, but there's a matter of marketing in everything that you do. And certainly the Bible says we are to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? We're to beautify it. We're to wear it properly. And we're to make it look like it's supposed to look. And then they were to bring the oil in. And the oil is associated with consecration and anointing. Anointing throughout the Bible. When someone was to be a priest or a king, they would have oil poured upon them. And that anointed them and set them aside for that cause and for that purpose in life. The New Testament talks about anointing as it relates to the believer. And John says this in 1 John 2, verse 20, "...but you have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things." Verse 27, he says this, "...but the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things in His truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him." What's he talking about? That anointing that abides within us. He's talking about the Holy Ghost of God. And he's saying that that's the unction, that's the anointing that dwells within you, that teaches you all things. Christ prophetically said that that's what the Spirit of God would do. He would lead us into all truth because He is the Spirit of truth. It's a reminder to me that if we're going to serve God the right way, we have to serve Him with a Spirit-led life. Listen, it's all good to be dedicated, but we've got to be dedicated in the right way. And I say this because now here we are on this Sunday night. And on a Sunday night, I, I know, listen, there, most of you that are here, you're here because you do love God. You're not here just out of formality, out of obligation, out of duty. And I want you to understand that's good. And I applaud you for it. And I recommend it to you. And I'm glad and I'm encouraged that you're here tonight. But it's not enough just to be dedicated. We have to be dedicated in the right way. We have to be dedicated in that resurrection life of walking with Him in newness of life, not in oldness, of a joyful life like the new wine represents and of the Spirit-led life, as the oil reminds us. Now, I want you to notice with me this evening, verse 13. The Bible says, I made treasurers over the treasuries. And he lists a few people. It says, one of them was a fellow named Shelemiah, the priest. Another was a guy named Zadok. He was a scribe. Of the Levites, there was a man named Padiah. And next to those folks was a fellow named Hanan. He was the son of Zachur, who was also the son of Mataniah. Mataniah was his grandfather. And he says, here's why I made them treasurers over the house of God. Because they were counted faithful. And their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Now, as we've walked through this message this morning and tonight, we saw the dysfunction recognized, a lapse in faithfulness, a loss in focus. A diagnosis was required. There was a pointed question, why is the house of God forsaken? And there was a personal correction. He made them stand in the place they had to be in. There was a debt repaid with corn, 
reminding us of the resurrected life, with new wine reminding us of the joyful life, and with oil reminding us of the Spirit-led life. But I want you to notice when we come to verse 13, we find the desired roster for the house of God. In other words, Nehemiah looks at this big, long conclave of people, and he says, I need some folks that I can count on. I need some people I can trust. I need some people I can lean on who can minister and work and labor in the house of God. And I ask this question tonight. What kind of people is God looking for? I'm glad God's not looking for the best-looking people to serve in the house of God. I don't know what you're thinking. I just want you all to be able to be involved. That's all. be awful lonely, me sitting in here by myself. I'm glad he ain't looking for the best-looking people. I'm glad he ain't looking for the best preachers. Because I'd surely be sitting in the parking lot. Glad he's not looking for the most talented. We got a lot of talented people. But hey, listen, there's always somebody that could outplay, outsing, outpray, out whatever you want to call it us. I'm glad though that there are some things that God does value in people that he's looking for. And I think when we look at the names of these men, we get an idea. You know, names meant something in the Word of God. They meant something. And uh, I, I don't. I won't say necessarily that they were prophetic, but they were often insightful, and they were often used to describe certain characteristics of these people. And I think in these uh, four men that are mentioned, we have a reminder of the kind of folks God is looking for. We're not going to take them all in in order, but we're going to mention each of them. Nehemiah mentions a man by the name of Padiah. 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 I think it's Padiah. I guess it'd be Padiah. If we say Isaiah, it'd be Padiah. And I don't know what Mr. Scurby would say. <laughs> but this man Padiah, or Padiah, he was a man that was defined by God's deliverance. You know what his name meant? His name meant Jehovah has ransomed. It's a reminder to me, number one, you know who the kind of people is that God's looking for to serve in the house of God? Is saved people that know that they're saved and that rejoice in their salvation. Every time you said this fellow's name, you'd have to say, hey, Jesus saves. Every time you said his name, it was a reminder that the God of glory has a plan for mankind. Every time you said this guy's name, you couldn't help but witness to the fact that God paid a great price for man's sins. And this man was defined by God's deliverance. Can I tell you something? You know one of the things that will help us in the church today? If we'll unget over the day God saved us. I'm going to say that again. About four of y'all got it. It would help the house of God if we would unget over the day that God saved us. Hey, listen, if we would get back the wonder of it all that we said we'd never lose... If we get back excited about what God did when He reached way down to where we were, grabbed us and plucked us by His grace out of our sins and redeemed us and saved us. We need to be the kind of people that are defined by God's deliverance. It ought to be people want to know what we have to say. We'd say, I'm glad God saved me. 
It ought to be when people ask us for a word of testimony, we say, let me tell you what God did in my life. It ought to be when people want to know what our political affiliation is. I ain't against having a political opinion. I got more one than most folks. But you know what would edify people a lot more? If instead of preaching our favorite political party, we'd say, hey, let me tell you, not about a president, a senator, or a congressman, but let me tell you about a king that left his throne, came down to where I was, took my place, died for my sins, and saved my soul. God's looking for people that are defined by His deliverance. There's a man by the name of Shelemiah. Shelemiah's name means this, thank offering to Jehovah. You know the kind of people God's looking for? You know what kind of dedication He wants? He wants people that are goaded by God's goodness and grace. Can I couple another word with it? The word gratitude. His name meant thank offering to Jehovah. In other words, every time somebody said His name, they had to give thanks unto God. Every time they said His name, they were reminded of the importance of gratitude. We ought to be a people that is marked by gratitude. That we are forever thankful for the great grace that God has shown us. You know, contentment and gratitude go hand in hand. Here's part of the problem. I think very often we have the tendency to think that once we're content, uh, then we can be grateful. But you know what I've found in life? If we'll just go ahead and be grateful for what God's done for us, it'll pave the road to contentment. The Bible says godliness with contentment. Hey, that's great gain. That's great gain. And we need to be a people that are goaded by God's grace. You know what ought to get us out of bed into the house of God? On Sunday mornings, it ought not be that somebody's going to fuss at us if we don't come. It ought not be that somebody's going to talk bad about us. It ought not be that we worry about what people will think of us. There ought to be something that rises above all of those petty motivations. It ought to be that we are motivated by the great grace that God has shown us and the great debt that we owe Him and the great gratitude that lives in our hearts at the fact that He was willing to save us. God's looking for those that are goaded by God's grace and defined by God's deliverance. There's a man by the name of Zadok. Zadok's name means simply this, righteous, righteous. God's looking for people that are in line with His law. Now, when I use the term law, I understand the dispensational significance of us living in this day of grace. I understand we're not under the Old Testament law. What I mean is this, God's looking for people that live their lives in line with this book. Hey, listen, God don't need nobody bad enough to condone or endorse their sin. Do you hear what I said? God don't need none of us bad enough to condone or endorse our sin. God has the liberty and the prerogative as the God of glory, as the master of all existence, to use those that are willing to bring themselves in line with the truth of His Word. And it ought to be that the house of God is marked by people that are dedicated, not just in their church life, but in their home life. Not just in their public life, but in their private life. Every time they said Zadok's name, every time they hollered at him, it's like they were saying, hey, righteous fella, hey, righteous man, hey, man that walks in accordance with God's law. He was a man that was associated with God's righteousness. And it ought to be, listen, there's a lot of things that on this side of glory ain't never going to get right. I understand But it ought to be that we endeavor to make sure that our life is marked as being in line with the truth of God's Word. Then there's a man by the name of Hanan. His name means this. He is merciful. Merciful. He's the son of a man by the name of Zakur. Zakur's name means mindful. I like this, man. And Zakur's daddy, this would be 
Hanan's granddaddy, was a man by the name of Mattaniah. Mattaniah, you know what his name means? His name means gift of Jehovah. So if you saw them all walking together and you said, Hey, Hanan, son of Zakur, grandson of Mattaniah. It's like you saying, Hey, there's somebody that is mindful of the great merciful gift of Jehovah. Their names bespoke and retold the story of God's mercy. And God's looking for people that are mindful of His mercy in their life. Can I, can I clue you in on something? Hey, listen, God's mercy and grace with you didn't end when you got up off your knees, having been freshly born again and saved. God's mercy is new every morning. His compassions fail not. It's not just that you ain't what you used to be because of the grace of God. It's that you ain't what you ought to be and what you could be tomorrow except by the grace of God. The grace of God is not something that just showed up one time in your life, answered judgment, and then walked off. Hey, David said this, mercy and truth shall follow me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. It ought to be that we, as we endeavor to serve God, and this is what I'm getting at. If you can get these truths, that's going to make you dedicated. That's what I'm getting at. People say, preacher, I want to be dedicated. I don't know how to be dedicated. Well, you need to be goaded by God's grace. You ought to serve God, not for other people, not for yourself, not because you feel a sense of duty or obligation, but because you're thankful for what God has done in your life. You ought to be a person who is defined by your salvation, God's deliverance. You ought to never get over what God did when He saved you. You ought to walk in righteousness. I found this. Folks will very rarely stay in church if they got sin in their life. Now, that's not to say that everybody that leaves this church leaves because they got sin in their life. Maybe like 85% of them. But that's not to say all of them. And maybe not like, I mean, I wouldn't give you all their names, but I've got a list of about 15 or 20 if you've got time after the service that I'll give you. Let's not to say that everybody that leaves Walridge Baptist Church does so because they got sin in their life. But I found this, that most of the time, this is the acid test. Do they leave here and go somewhere else and start serving God in a Bible-believing church? Let me tell you something. There's been times that I've had to eat some crow. I know you don't believe that. Mild-mannered, soft-spoken individual as myself, you could never imagine I'd ever let my mouth get me in trouble. But there have been times that people have left and I've thought, man, they're, they're out of the will of God. They're walking away from the will of God, man. They're, they're getting in sin. They're rebellious. They're only to watch them go to some like-minded, like-faith, Bible-believing church, join, yoke up, and start serving God. And most of the time doing more there than they ever did here. And I've had to say, well, you know, I was probably wrong. God was probably just leading them elsewhere. But without fail, you mark her down. You walk through those double doors. You give up on the house of God. And it puts you on your couch on Sundays and Wednesdays doing nothing. You didn't do that by the will of God. You did that by the will of the flesh. God's not going to leave you into a life of unfaithfulness. He's not going to bring you into a place of inconsistency and of absence from the house of God, that very often is the acid test. What do they do? And you, you often you don't know. You have to just pray and love people, trust them, try to leave an open door best as you can. But I'm saying this, that listen, we as God's people, you want to know how we keep from doing that? We live righteously. Our personal walk with the Lord needs to be right. And I, I've never seen anyone get sin in their life and without it affecting their relationship to the house of God. And he wants those that are mindful of His mercy. Not just His mercy when He saved them, but His everyday, present, perpetual mercy. But you know, I find something. I find this, that if there is a common denominator 
between people that are candidates. Let me give you an example. If you had 12 people applying for a job, and of all different races, economic classes, uh, of all different backgrounds of experience, but every one of them, without fail, had the same four-year degree, you know what you'd say? You'd say, I guess that four-year degree is a requirement. That has to be there. The other things may help in some areas, hurt in others, make someone more qualified in this sense, less qualified in that sense. But if they all have to have that degree, that must be a requirement. You know, I find that there is a requirement here. Four different men, six are mentioned in the verse, but four particularly as being candidates for working in the house of God. But Nehemiah says something about all four of them. He says, you know what I found? Verse 13, they were counted faithful. You know what kind of people that God's looking for? He ain't looking for the best. He's just looking for the most faithful. I found this, that most of the time people will use their lack of talent or ability or capability as an excuse for not serving God. They've made an issue of that, but do you know that God never has? He's chosen the small things of this world, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. You know the one thing He's looking for? Look at every single parable that He told about servants, and you'll never find one where He looked at someone and said, you're just not talented enough, you're just not smart enough, you just don't have the charisma. But over and over and over and over again, He describes this one as being a faithful servant and this one as being a wicked servant. You know why? God puts a premium on faithfulness. In fact, God can't use an unfaithful person regardless of their talents or abilities. They all had to be faithful. They had various qualities and characteristics, and God used each of those. But let me tell you who God's looking for. He's looking for those that are featuring faithfulness. If you're not faithful, God can't use you. Look at verse 14 and we'll close. Closes with a prayer. Nehemiah turns his vision heavenward and says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Can I wrap it up with this simple thought? We find the design behind all this relayed. In other words, Nehemiah says, You know why we're going to all this trouble? You know why we're doing all this? You know why we're trying to drive out the mixed multitude? Why we're throwing Tobiah out of the house? Of God, while we're throwing out and cleansing, while we're scrubbing down all of the utensils of the temple, while we're getting everything right, getting it all in order. You know why we go to all this trouble? He says it's for two things. One, it's for pleasing the Father. He says, remember me. Remember me, Lord. He says, in all this stuff, God, all I want is for you to remember me. Now, when he uses that term, remember, it doesn't mean remember in the sense of retaining in your mind but it means to honor something. Same way the Bible says that God remembered Noah. God had not forgotten Noah. Same way that the Bible says that God remembered Hagar. God had not forgotten Hagar. But what it's saying is God at that moment honored them. And Nehemiah is saying, Lord, honor me. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I want you to let me know that you're pleased with what I'm doing. Can I tell you something? And I've had to come to terms with this as a pastor. There is always a desire and endeavor... As a, as a pastor and our ministry leaders, they know the same thing. When you're working in ministry, you're always trying to figure out a way to make sure that there's no man-made obstacles to people being able to feel comfortable and at home and to find a church home at your church. 
And we, we try to go to great lengths. We try to make sure, our, and, and we fail in a lot of ways. I know that we do. But we try to make sure that everything's structured in such a way, uh, wh- whether it's clean facilities or whether it's making sure we got song books, whether it's making sure our music is vibrant and alive, whether it's making sure we got nursery workers, whether it's making sure we got nursery workers, whether it's making sure we got nursery workers. I'm stuck right there. Whether we make sure we got nursery workers because we've had a bunch of them bail out on us and we need to make sure we got nursery workers making sure we've got these things to be able to provide so that people can feel at home. One of the things that we always need to have, not at the back of our mind, but at the front of it, is this. At the end of the day, I I don't mean this in an ugly way. God knows my heart. I hope you know my heart too. Or at least trust me enough. I ain't here for you. I ain't here to please you. I ain't here to make you happy. I ain't here to make you impressed. I hope you feel loved. I'm here to love you, but I'm not here to make you feel loved. But I am here to love you. You know what I'm here for? At the end of the day, friend, I'm here to please Him. And it ought to be that above and beyond everything. And I've found this. It's not to say that pleasing folks and pleasing God are always mutually exclusive. They're not. Sometimes you can do both. But if there's one of them that needs the right of way, we ought to always try to please God first. It ought to be that our first endeavor is to please the Father. Number two, you know what he says? He says, wipe not out my good deeds that I have done. I I want you to notice something here. Look at this little word for. He doesn't say in the house of my God and in the offices thereof. Now, if he had said that, I would have thought, well, maybe what he's saying is, Lord, make sure that you reward me for these things. But he says, don't wipe out the good deeds that I've done for the house of God for the offices thereof. It's almost as though Nehemiah is saying this, I put a lot of work in this place, and Lord, I pray that you'd honor it and that it would make a difference. Not only pleasing the Father, but you know the second thing? It it, it is secondary, but it also is important, and that's perpetual fruit. We might call it this, fruit that remains. You know what our endeavor and desire ought to be in as much as we invest in the work and the church and the house of God? It's to change it for the better, to maintain that which must be maintained, but to to better, to enrich the house of God and the work of God and to leave something behind for the next generation. Very quickly, my friend, uh, we are approaching the closing days of life. And we don't know when the rapture is going to be. It could, it's imminent. That means it could be tomorrow. It means it could be a thousand years. We don't know when the rapture is going to be. But if the Lord tarries His coming, or if it appears to us as tarrying, if it doesn't happen as soon as we think that it ought to, we're going to leave a generation behind us. We're going to leave the church in some kind of shape for it. What kind of shape are we going to leave it in? I'll tell you right now, for a lot of folks, they're running hard and fast as they can to completely gut out the church of God and make it resemble the world as closely as they can. I don't think that ought to be our pursuit. I think we ought to try to enrich the house of God and leave something behind for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren. They're coming behind us. What are they going to find? And I don't just mean as far as the building and the property, but I mean as far as the culture of the church. They're going to find a place that's alive with worship and evangelism and preaching and a right focus and a right priority? Or are they just going to find a whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones? We ought to endeavor to leave something worthwhile.